In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. We were all born and raised in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, headquartered in Salt Lake City, Utah, more commonly referred to as the Mormon faith. All of us have left that religion and have been drawn to faith in Jesus Christ based on biblical teachings. The name of our podcast, Outer Brightness, reflects John 1, 9, which calls Jesus the true light, which gives light to everyone. We have found life beyond Mormonism to be brighter than we were told it would be, and the light we have is not our own. It comes to us from without thus outer brightness. Our purpose is to share our journeys of faith and what God has done in drawing us to his son. We have conversations about all aspects of that transition, the fears, challenges, joys, and everything in between. We're glad you found us and we hope you'll stick around. You're listening to Outer Brightness, a podcast for post-Mormons who are drawn by God to walk with Jesus rather than turn away. Outer brightness, outer brightness, outer brightness, outer brightness. There's no weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth here, except when Michael's hangry, that is, hangry, that is, hangry, that is. I'm Matthew, the nuclear Calvinist. I'm Michael, the ex-Mormon apologist. I'm Paul Bunyan. Let's get into it. Who am I? It's a question most of us ask at some point in our lives. Identity is one of the most ubiquitous and controversial terms in modern life. The American Psychological Association defines identity as an individual's sense of self defined by a a set of physical, psychological, and interpersonal characteristics that is not wholly shared with any other person, and b a range of affiliations, e.g. ethnicity, and social roles. Identity involves a sense of continuity or the feeling that one is the same person today that one was yesterday or last year, despite physical or other changes. Such a sense is derived from one's body sensations, one's body image, and the feeling that one's memories, goals, values, expectations, and beliefs belong to the self. That definition touches on three aspects of identity, namely that it is personal, familial, and social. When seeking to define identity, we're dealing with a bit of a nebulous phenomenon, the sense of self, which as the APA definition notes, differs for each person. Nevertheless, this sense of self is something that is derived from our own understandings of our personal experiences, our aspirations, our ideals, our hopes, and our beliefs. In a blog piece titled, The Danger of Tribe Mentality Over Empathy, Lauren, the creator of the website Modern Day Ohm, Mindfulness and Mental Health for Real People, shares her thoughts on an article she read in Mindful Magazine, quote, about how humans are biased towards claims that conform to our existing beliefs or points of view, end quote. She writes, the article calls this cognitive tribalism, when being a part of a community becomes part of our identity. It gives us purpose, belonging, a sense of being within something bigger than we are. What our group believes, we believe and other groups or schools of thought that our group dislikes, we dislike. This makes a lot of sense, and I see it every day. I truly believe that on the deepest level we all want to belong, being different and un- is uncomfortable, and in a much older time it would have probably led to exile or being ostracized. It's part of our nature to feel comfortable, to feel safe, as one of the group. For Mormons who lose belief in the truth claims of the LDS Church, questions related to identity abound. Am I still Mormon? If so, in what sense? Do I have a new identity? What is that? In the next three episodes, I and the other Sons of Light tackle that big topic. We discuss how one's identity is affected by one's faith journey. This week, we'll be talking about questions related to when we first recalled having a sense of self. Uh, and as a child, whether our religion as, as Latter-day Saints played a role in developing that sense of self. And then finally, what influence the LDS Church had on our sense of self as we were coming of age in our formative and teenage years. We hope you enjoy these episodes. Thanks, Fireflies. So, you know, this first question kind of asks us to look back into our our own pasts, right? To to get a sense for when we first uh, remember having a sense of self. And again, a sense of self is defined as a way a person thinks about and views his or her traits, beliefs, and purpose within the world. So in a nutshell, um, a strong sense of self may be defined by knowing your own goals, values, and ideals, 
So, Michael, why don't, why don't you tell me, what, when do you first remember having a sense of self? Tell me about that. Okay, this is actually a really tough question for me. I don't usually think this deeply, so um, I would say that it was probably as a young teenager before I started to have a, a sense of self. Because when I was just a, a kid, you know, I was just kind of going with the flow. I didn't feel like I had any sort of goal or impact in the world. And I think it was just, you know, kind of when I was around 14, 15, and I just had my four or my three friends at church, and together we made up the odd quad. So mm-hmm. we're just a bunch of a bunch of nerds that hung out together. And so I was, I was just kind of like the, the comic relief in the group and – like I was just constantly wanting to to wrestle like at the youth activities and stuff. So I think I started to just kind of build an image of myself. It's like, okay, I'm like, you know, the guy with a sense of humor that wants to, you know, rough people up all the time. What do you mean exactly like by goals and, and that kind of thing, though? Because my goals weren't obviously they were very short sighted at that point. Like my only goal at the at that time was just to to have fun and meet girls and that kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, those things develop over time, you know, they change and as our, as do our identities, which is part of the topic today. So I think, yeah, I think you're right on point. Yeah. So, you know, I, I started to kind of realize that I had some, some things that I was good at and some things that I was really bad at. And I think I defined myself a lot based on those things. So I knew for instance, you know, I was always, really good at writing from a young age. In fact, in high school, I, I just started, I had a hobby of, of writing fictional stories. It never went anywhere, but there was one instance where I wrote, I started writing a short story and it was in first person and it was about being locked in a basement. And I just described it in such vivid detail. I'm like, all I could hear was the drip of water and, and counting the water is what kept me sane. Well, they ended up pulling my parents in to the school and asking them questions because they thought that it was real and you know it wasn't i was just wow. i was just you know trying to be descriptive and and trying to write and and they almost got in trouble for it so i i saw that i was really good at writing and i was horrible at talking to people you know i was just super shy and just didn't think that i was very important at all because I didn't have the confidence that other people around me had. So I think just kind of seeing my shortcomings and, and really identifying myself based on those things is is when I started to have a sense of self. Okay. Yeah, good. Yeah, that uh, what you said about writing there resonates as well. I'll talk about that a little bit in a minute. Matthew, what about you? When do you first remember having a sense of self? It was probably, you know, early elementary school age, maybe uh, when I was a little kid. I was kind of like when Michael's explaining, I just kind of wanted to have fun. I like playing video games and hanging out with my friends. But like, you know, as I started growing older, I started to really like art. I really love to draw a lot. And so like when I grew up, you know, I was, I, it was like all the, you know, the childhood fantasy of wanting to be a superhero and all that stuff. And so I drew comics and superheroes and all that kind of stuff all the time. Superman and Batman and Spider-Man and all that. And so I was like, hey, this is kind of fun. And I'm like, I'm okay at it, you know, you know, for a five-year-old or, <laughs> or whatever, seven-year-old. I was like, hey, you know, maybe I should do this as like a career. So then that was kind of like what really motivated me to just like really, just really go crazy with my drawing. And like I just spent hours and hours every day drawing. And my parents bought me this really awesome art table that I would draw on. And uh, I just drew a lot. So I think that's kind of when I first started to develop, you know, my sense of like who I was and what I was good at and like something that I could shoot for, you know, in my in my future career. And I'm not sure when that changed, when I decided maybe I got old enough and I realized that my, my art wasn't really that good. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but at some point, uh, that changed and um, I kind of moved on to other ideas. I also had a really good friend in school that whose mom was just like a fantastic painter. She would paint with watercolors, but mostly oils. She She did portraits and she just did the most incredible artwork. But they were always struggling to pay the bills and stuff. And so I think... I kind of felt bad about that, and uh, I don't know. Maybe I don't. Maybe it was subconscious or something. But I thought to myself, I was like, "Man, you know, they go through a lot of hardships, and I'm not sure I want to go through that." So, I guess, like you said, over time, I guess your values and your ideas about the shift and change over time, and I guess maybe my desire for conveniences or you know for a certain income or whatever, maybe that shifted my 
my goals. I don't know. But yeah, I don't know if that's kind of what you're hoping for. Yeah, no, that's that, good. That, that actually brought a, a memory to my mind too, because I remember just playing tons of video games when I was, when I was younger and I would go spend the summer with my cousin and we'd play like fighting games like Street Fighter and, and all this stuff. And my dad was a computer programmer. So, you know, me and my cousin were talking one day and we're like, hey, let's grow up and make a fighting game. And it's going to be about, you know, all the mascots from the fast food restaurants. So it's like we got to get all their permission. So like I called Jack in the box and I'm like, is Jack there? They're like, yeah, just a minute. <laughs> <laughs> just like sat there on hold for like 45 minutes and we're just like honestly <laughs> believing that like jack is gonna get on the phone and like talk to us <laughs> oh that's great that's great so how long did you wait before they broke the news to you <laughs> they never broke coming. the news to us i don't think they had the heart to do it you know like <laughs> They just kept us on hold until we gave up. It's like, well, I guess I'll call later, you know? <laughs> they, they didn't come back and say, sorry, he's in the box. No, they didn't. Uh, they never came back. You killed Jack? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow. I, I have so many thoughts on how, you know, our our values and our, our senses of self early on in our lives kind of intersect. It's interesting. So, Matthew, I'm, I'm with you, kind of like my first... Uh, sense of self came early on in, in elementary school. Uh, I had a I had a couple of different speech impediments. Uh, you may notice at times in the podcast that I, I'll stutter some words here and there. Um, and the other the other thing that I dealt with when I was younger was roticism, which is having trouble saying your R's. So I, I talked like Elmer Fudd when I was in like kindergarten and first and second grade, and I used to go to speech therapy during school to to help me with that and i there's one story in particular that my family thinks is hilarious and i I don't really think it's very funny but i was at my great aunt's house she she was uh she moved out to utah uh from new york uh my grandmother's sister my dad's mother um and she lived next door to us and we would go over and she would you know give us cookies you know oreos and chocolate chip you know, chips ahoy cookies and and we would sit and talk with her and my my great uncle Bob and you know they had this German shepherd dog named Bear that was just an amazing dog and we we would pet the dog and sit and eat cookies and they would uh sit and smoke and and it was just it was it was another world living in Utah because they were uh very much you know Brooklyn New Yorkers and it was you know it was a a view into my dad's family that I didn't normally have but we were there one time and she had, she had given us some pretzels, some of the uh, stick pretzels, you know, and she wanted us to, you know, break them up and, and make our initials out of them. And, and my name is Paul Richard Nurnberg. And I, I uh, used the pretzels to, to set out PWN um, <laughs> because even with the, uh, with the letters, I was struggling, you know, not just the pronunciation, but, but with the letters and understanding the difference and, and so my family thinks that's hilarious, but I don't. But in, in any case, as a result, in elementary school, I got bullied a lot um, because of my speech impediments. And um, that was kind of one of the things that that first gave me a, a sense of self. It was a negative sense of self, but um, it's one of the first times I remember, you know, being aware that I was a, a separate person from other people and, and had differences and, and things. And so um, there was that. But, al- but also, uh, Matthew, you know, kind of aligning with you. Uh, I, I discovered a, a love of drawing around that time and, you know, would compete in a lot of like the reflections contests in, in elementary school, which was for art uh, and writing. And I remember doing a, a drawing of the, the Challenger disaster because I remember, you know, watching that live uh, when I was in second grade and how, how much it impacted my, my second grade teacher because there were, you know, there was the teacher on board that shuttle. And so, that kind of spurred me to to love drawing, and I did that for many years after that. And then, Michael, like you said, you know, later on in high school, I got into you know creative writing and did like poetry and short stories, and um, really found a love for that, um, which made me a little bit different than than some of my friends at the time because I played basketball and was captain of the basketball team, and you know, creative writing wasn't really something that that you know quote unquote jocks did. So. 
uh, kind of put me in a different category there too as well. Kind of playing off of that that early life sense of self as as a child, what role did did your religion play in your sense of self, if any? Matthew, what do you think? Well, it's interesting because I do have vivid memories of sitting with my parents uh, at LDS church services in sacrament meeting and also going to primary. Like, I love my parents and, you know, I'm not trying to speak ill of them whatsoever. I really appreciate, you know, what they've, they've done for me. But, you know, we weren't we weren't really exactly, we were we were Sunday Mormons, essentially. You know, we would go to church and then afterwards, you know, I think I mentioned it before where we would shop on Sundays and stuff, and that would kind of confuse me as a kid because we would talk about how you're not supposed to shop on Sundays. And I'd ask my parents, and I wouldn't really get a straight answer. And I'd also asked why my parents weren't married in the temple and things like that. So, so it was interesting because you know, as a small kid, you're still trying to, like you said, you're still trying to figure out who you are. You're trying to figure out the world. I s- still kept a kind of simple mindset where I liked what I liked, like comic books and video games and stuff. And I tried not to worry about too much stuff, but still, you kind of start to ask yourself those kind of deeper questions and you know, why do you do certain things or why do we do it this way? And you question authority a lot more, I think, at least I did as a little kid. And so, yeah, it's like it played a part of our lives, but I I always wondered why we did it because, you know, we didn't really integrate what we learned at church very well into the rest of our lives. Like, it wasn't like my parents were bad parents at all. They were great. But, you know, also my parents, you know, they weren't alcoholics, but they drank occasionally and they drank coffee pretty regularly. So, I think that kind of, that seeing both sides where, I had my friends whose families were really hardcore and, you know, they were really devoted to the LDS faith. And then my parents and I, you know, we went to church and it almost seemed kind of like a social thing. So I don't know. It was really hard for me to figure it all out in my head, figure out why we went to church. And I didn't like going to church for that reason. Cause I was like, well, what does it matter? You know, like we're not really even doing anything the church says you're supposed to do. So, <laughs> so it was, it was a hard thing for me to kind of figure out, but in some sense, you know, I like the community and I like the social aspects of it, meeting other people and going to, church functions and things like that sometimes, you know, where they'd have food and stuff or they'd have parties or things like that. So it kind of, it kind of played that role when I was a kid, but in terms of like the actual religious aspects of the religion, it wasn't that big of a role in my childhood. Did the fact that you were Sunday Mormons, as you said, affect the way you were accepted within the LDS community at all? Well, I remember, uh, I remember when talking to other kids and we would talk about getting married in the temple and how it's so important because, you know, families can be together forever or all that stuff. And just other kids being so excited to say, well, my parents are married in this temple and my parents are married in that temple. And they'd ask me and I would say, well, my parents weren't married in the temple. And they said, well, why not? And, and I was confused because I was little and I didn't really understand, you know, it, it's hard to understand adult dynamics when you're that young. So I didn't quite understand. So I, I felt a little bit ostracized in that sense. And then kind of as I grew older in my teenage years, I kind of started going more to church, especially before and after uh, 12, when you see the priesthood, I started getting really active and going weekly. And, you know, uh, I think I was like deacons quorum president at some point. I can't remember. I think I might've been and mm-hmm. uh, teachers quorum. And, and then after teachers quorum, I kind of just started stopped going. That's kind of when my parents were going through divorce and that was kind of rough. And I, kind of got to the point again where I didn't really see the point of going to church because I wasn't really truly a believer anyway. So mm-hmm. kind of had that. So I had kind of had like dips, you know, hills and valleys, I guess, in terms of activity. And But I never really, I don't know, I was like, I wasn't really sure if I really believed in God up to that point anyway. It was kind of mm-hmm. like I was going for other reasons. Yeah. Yeah. Michael, what about you? I completely agree with what he just said about going for other reasons. Because that pretty much sums up my entire childhood right there. Churches, it was three hours long back then. And as a kid, that is not something that you want to spend your Sunday doing. So I kind of viewed Sunday as the, that day where we have to go to church, you know, great. You know, and then I have to get dressed up and I have to put on a, a tie and it always felt like it was choking me. So I always just felt really uncomfortable at church. And I think the way that I viewed it was just that, you know, there's all these rules and none of them affect me positively. So Sundays, you know, I wasn't allowed to even go in the backyard. You know, the family was very strict about what we could do on the Sabbath. And, you know, that meant that there were just a few certain movies that we were allowed to watch and a few activities that were approved by them. And so Sundays just, it was just a drag as a kid. I, 
I hated Sunday. It's like, yeah, you know, it's great because I don't have to go to school, but I'd almost rather go to school or have to do, you know, my normal weekly stuff than have to deal with Sunday because I just I was bored all the time. And and so that was that was really rough for me. Um, That didn't start to change until, you know, I was about 14 or 15 years old. And I think the youth programs that they have in the church are fantastic and you know, I, I started to make a lot of friends in the church and you know, it was very different from at school because at school, I don't think I ever talked to anybody like pretty much the entire time, um, all the way through high school, you know, just, a, I just had a very small group of friends and that was it. But at church, you know, I had lots of friends and so I was able to actually socially interact and, uh, and integrate. And so, you know, I just, I guess I, I bonded with, the other members of the church at that point, and I felt like, you know, this is my tribe. These are my people. I'm actually happy here. I can be myself. And so that's that's really where things started to take a turning point for me. Okay. Yeah, I grew up in a, a part of Salt Lake City that was a little more di- diverse, I think, than, than maybe other areas, areas of Utah were. Like, for example, my first grade teacher was an African-American woman from Detroit, and at the end of the day, when, you know, the last five minutes of class, when we would be taking turns being dismissed to go and get our backpacks from our cubbies, uh, she would put on Michael Jackson and like teach us to break dance. And like, we had to break dance over the cubby to get your backpack. You know, it was, uh, I, I don't know that, you know, how many Utah kids had that experience. My kindergarten teacher was, was a, uh, a Catholic and she was from Central America. And she did, she like in public school, she did like the Christmas story, right? Like I was chosen to play Joseph. Um, a girl in my class was chosen to play Mary. Uh, a friend of mine who lived up the street from me, who was also a Catholic, uh, was chosen to play the innkeeper. And I remember he and his family were a little upset that he didn't get the part of Joseph. Like, I don't know if they thought maybe he should have an in because they were both, both the teacher and, and the family were Catholic. Um, and I was a Mormon, but it's like one of those experiences where I kind of remember there being some, some disagreement over the fact that I was a different religion than somebody else. And, um, one of those kind of first experiences where I was realizing, oh, you know, my, my religion that I belong to, uh, because of, you know, the family I'm growing up in isn't viewed positively by everybody. And so, yeah, this is kind of one of the first times I remember feeling different because of my religion. But then, you know, when I was in fourth grade, we moved from, you know, that kind of downtown Salt Lake City, you know, in between Salt Lake City and, and, and Bountiful. We moved from there to West Jordan and out to the suburbs. And the friends that I made at my new school, uh, one was, was not LDS. And then the other one who was kind of best friends with, with him, uh, though his family was LDS, he didn't consider himself to be LDS. And so, you know, they became my two, two best friends through the rest of elementary school, middle school, and, and, and then on through high school as well. And there were times when I felt some, what I would say is maybe some judgment from some of my LDS peers because my closest friends were not LDS. And I also saw my friend, uh, who was, you know, a really good kid, uh, you know, be judged by, by LDS people. Like when we got into dating, into, uh, dating years, um, in high school, you know, he would ask LDS girls out and sometimes be turned down because he wasn't LDS. And it really used to hurt his feelings and and make him upset. And, you know, I got to see that firsthand and talk to him about it firsthand because we were good friends and, um, kind of a situation where I remember thinking, you know, that, that, uh, that maybe wasn't as, as, as helpful to, to people to have that view of, you know, we're not going to have relationships with people outside of, of kind of the LDS bubble. And, then, you know, Michael, maybe you didn't experience that as much growing up in, in Texas, but actually I uh, did. You'd did be you surpri- really? You'd be okay. surprised. Yeah. I mean, there was this one time where, you know, like when I was, when I was a young adult, like girls didn't pay attention to me at all, but there was this one time where one of my coworkers had a friend and, she was interested in me. So, you know, we ended up going out, uh, like once or twice and I was actually really interested in her. And then I go back to my apartment 
you know, with all my roommates and they caught wind of what's going on. And they basically all told me like it was unacceptable for me to date a non-member. And because of the peer pressure, I stopped going out with her. Wow. Wow. Matthew, did you, did you experience anything like that? Well, I, I did. I did experience some, some things like that. I mean, just the fact that, like I said, around 14, 15 is kind of when I started going inactive from the church and I would, I guess I considered myself an atheist at that time. So I wasn't really ostracized for my faith. It was more for my lack of faith because of, you know, being in Utah, uh, most of my friends were, well, I mean, most of the people that I had gone on dates with in terms of school dances and things like that, they were LDS. And so that was kind of hard just because, I don't know, it's, it's weird to think the, it was weird to me at the time to think that like, that I was okay enough to go to dance with at school but, you know, if I wanted to date, you know, ask them out for a second date, I know that they wouldn't. I didn't even ask, try to ask them out for a second date most of the time because I just knew that I just inherently knew that LDS girls only really want to seriously date LDS guys. Mm-hmm. Plus, I was kind of young, so it wasn't really that big a deal to me anyway, I guess, at the time. But, yeah, it was it was kind of rough. And that um, just this idea of like, OK, well, shouldn't you date someone for who they are? Rather than, you know, what church they're affiliated with. That's kind of how I felt at the time. Because I didn't feel like I was a terrible person or anything. As I grew older and I, you know, became active in the church and I understood, okay, they really place emphasis on temple marriage and raising children in the church. And I can understand why they wouldn't want to date me because if I remain inactive, because you kind of want someone with a similar value system. So, you know, it was kind of just my, perhaps it was partially just my immature understanding of relationships and things like that and selfishness that that kind of that that bothered me but yeah so that's that's all i really dealt with okay i don't know if, i don't know if you guys ever heard anybody talk about this but i remember being in the young men's program and them basically saying like oh you know any two people it can work out if they get married you know as long as they have these similar values and kind of made it sound like nothing really mattered personality didn't matter it was just you know that you had the same values did you ever hear anything like that in the church? I don't remember hearing anything like that growing up, but listening to others say like on, on like the Mormon stories podcast, talk about their marriages and also, you know, talking with Angela and and conversations that she had with other women uh, in during the years that we were a married couple within the church. um, She definitely heard that from, from women she talked to and it, it, surprised her and and i've heard people on on like mormon stories podcast talk about it as well um that there was there was that view that like as long as you were you were kind of both you know worthy lds people uh you're right like um personality and 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 whether or not you you were compatible in, in other ways didn't really matter it would work out and and unfortunately you know i've seen that be kind of a, a a bad thing for, for marriages at times. So I do kind of remember something, hearing something about that. I don't know if it was, um, not Oaks. What's that guy's name? What's Holland? Is, Are you thinking of Holland? Jeffrey R. Holland. Yeah, yeah. I think that's him. I don't know if it's him, but I do remember people passing around this story that, you know, it was at a youth meeting at BYU or something. And they're saying, I can't find a spouse. Can you help me out? And he says, well, do you have a temple recommend? And then he says, yeah. And then he points to another girl in the crowd. Do you have a temple recommend? Yeah like all right well then you're perfect for each other you know i heard i heard some story like that but i never went back to go you know to go check to see if that was a legitimate talk Mm -hmm. that they gave but Mm -hmm. but yeah when i heard that even when i was lds i was like okay whether he said that or not i don't think that's super great advice and maybe it's just because you know i'd seen you know my parents you know with their divorce it was kind of rough and you know some level of compatibility in terms of personality is important not just simply what you believe in Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. The next question is similar to the previous one, but it's uh, it's a little different as well. So part of identity is social and cultural. So how did the LDS church specifically, like like the church proper, not necessarily the culture, but the church proper influence your sense of self? Michael, what would you say? Well, the first thing that, that I think of is in a lot of ways, it was really positive. I I really do well with a strict structure like what I had on my mission and just the rules in general in the church. I just tend to be the kind of person that, that operates really well when there's a lot of strict rules. So, you know, I think 
it was a positive thing for me to be going to the church and just have so many, you know, strict things that I, I couldn't do, you know, and I was really proud of it too. Like, Oh, I don't watch rated R movies. I didn't drink caffeine, went to church every Sunday and read the scriptures and, and prayed sometimes. So I think in one aspect, just the structure helped me with my life. But I mean, I had a lot of just, and I know you're talking about the, the church proper and, and the church itself wasn't something that I felt really committed to until um, I was actually on my mission. So up until that time, it was all about the culture for me. Um, and it was just, you know, it was like a drug. I mean, I would, I'd be hanging out with all my friends and, and having these fun activities and, you know, doing, you know, having great snacks and, and firesides. And I just liked everything about it. Mm-hmm. In fact, you know, I'm still like, man, I wouldn't mind reliving my childhood in the church. That's how much I enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. Um, I went on my mission and I still kind of had that mindset. And I'm telling you, there was a, there was a lot of pressure for me to go on my mission because my family, my family line goes all the way back to the beginning of the church and, and, you know, people been going on missions for generations. I was like a seventh generation Latter-day Saint. And so that was just something that was expected of me um, to do. I don't think I really questioned it too much, but I went on my mission and I was still kind of in a culture mindset. I don't think I really knew the doctrine really well. In fact, my cousin was in the car with me one day and he found the Book of Mormon sitting there and he's like, you know, what's so special about this book? I'm like, oh, well, you know, it's it's another book of scripture written by prophets on the American continent. And we have living prophets today. And he's like, well, what's so special about that? And I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I just I just didn't have a mind for that kind of thing back then. All I cared about was just having a good time, being around my friends. And and that was about it. Uh, it wasn't until I went on my mission met and met at Enox and started debating evangelicals. And they started to attack the church that I started wanting to defend it. And I started feeling like I was... Uh, connected to the church somehow. And I think part of it was just the first time I started to really feel doubt about whether the church was true. I just felt like really lost. You know, my whole family structure just felt um, kind of fake at that Mm -hmm. point. I don't know if that's the right word, but I just kept thinking about my whole family and I'm like, this can't be right because, you know, my mom and dad are really intelligent people and, I'm especially my dad. I mean, my dad was my hero. Um, and I was like, there's no way that, you know, that he would fall for this if it wasn't true. Like it has to be true because he's a member of the church. Like there's, there's no question. And if it's not true, then, you know, maybe he doesn't, he, he doesn't deserve to be respected by me. You know, maybe I'm just wrong about everything in mm-hmm. life. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and if the church was false, then I had to be wrong about everything in life because that was the one thing that I was absolutely certain of was that the church wasn't some evil organization like people wanted to paint it out to be. Mm-hmm. When when you met Ed and started debating with him and did did that feel like a personal attack to you? I don't think it did at first. I mean I did feel, you know, this like pit in my you know, this hole in my stomach, like, oh my goodness, like and I think it was more about just what if I'm wasting my time here and, and what if I'm wrong? Mm-hmm. But then as I left and I started thinking about my family and just kind of sympathizing with them and, and how they would feel if if it was discovered that the church was false, I think my bond with my family kind of tied in with their bond to the church. And so then it kind of started to become important for me to learn how to defend it and it's kind of funny because I completely switched my mindset after my mission. Whereas before I'd been all about the culture and I didn't care about the doctrine. I cared a lot about the doctrine, but I didn't really like the culture. Um, coming off my mission, I, you know, I wasn't in the same place. I kind of felt like an outcast a lot of times, um, especially, you know, coming out like all my friends from, when I was a young man, they all got married really quickly. Mm. Um, I think one of them got married like a week after his mission, which I don't know how you pull that off. Um, and then, you know, pretty soon they were, they were all married and, 
and I just sat there and like, it took me a couple years and, and I'm just like, okay, like this culture, you know, in Mormonism, like you get married quickly or there's something wrong with you. And so I'm like, what's wrong with me that I can't get married. And then I also didn't, didn't end up going to school. And that's a big culture thing. You know, you're, you're supposed to go to school. Like the first few years there, even into my marriage, if we talked to another young couple, that was always the topic that was being discussed is, oh, what are you going to school for? And it was just assumed because that's what everybody does. And I'm like, well, I'm not really doing anything. I don't even, I don't even know what my plans are or anything. I was just really, you know, not doing anything, but I just felt, I just felt ostracized because of that. And, and even, you know, into marriage and having a, my first kid, I'm like, okay, like, apparently we don't have enough children because we're just not that popular. You know, maybe if we had more kids, people would want to reach out and talk to us more. So I really just, you know, I I ended up having some friends here and there, but I was really more like, you know, the church is full of imperfect people, but the doctrine's perfect. So, you know, even though I hate it here, sometimes I'm going to stay here because, you know, where else am I going to go? No one else has the truth except for us. So, so you, you would say though, on your mission and, and after that your, your sense of self as a Mormon quote unquote was strengthened. Yeah. I, I definitely saw myself as a Latter-day Saint um, mm-hmm. on my mission. And after my mission, it was inseparable. I think early on in my mission, you know, right after talking to Ed, I was kind of like thinking, you know, I don't think the church is true. And I was starting to read the Bible and I was like, if it'll just, if I can just find the right passages that tell me it's not true, I'm ready to go. And I was, I wasn't that connected to it at that point, but you know, really quickly after that, it just really latched on and it, it wasn't going to let go for a long time. Uh, yeah. Matthew, what about you? So when I had gone into an activity in high school, I'd, I'd kind of had the yearning for something more, to be more connected to something, you know, to whether it's, I don't know, something metaphysical or just to people. Like, I always wanted to have some kind of deeper connections with, with people. But there's also always that tension also, because I was an introvert, and I still am, where it's like, you know, I enjoy being around other people, but sometimes, but most of the time, I just like doing my own thing, because <laughs> sometimes, because I just get stressed out too easily. So, um, but yeah, I was always kind of searching for deeper friendships or, or, you know, possibly dating and, you know, looking forward to marriage and stuff. I didn't even start thinking about that in late high school, just because I don't know, just like I said, it's, it's strange. It's push and pull relationship where as an introvert, at least as I had, it was like, it was like, I wanted to connect to people, but it was difficult because I didn't know how to, and it was hard finding people that connected with me. So anyways, going back to the LDS church, so th- like having this difficulty of not feeling disconnected from everyone, and I, I also had some difficulties with my job. I said some jokes where I, I'd kind of gone too far, you know, like, and uh, it was taken the wrong way. And so because of that, they got really upset and they complained to the regional manager, basically. And so I lost my job. I think, it was, I mean, like, I, I felt really bad about it, even though it was just a misunderstanding, you know, because everybody, everybody I worked with were just, you know, we would always joke around and just say stuff that we didn't mean, you know, and so I think, you know, I, I felt like they took it too personally, but I did, I did feel really, really bad about it because at the same time, I know that if it were completely blameless, I wouldn't, I wouldn't feel bad about it. I, I still feel guilty about it. So I was dealing with that and I was in my first year of college where I lost my job, but I kind of wanted to leave anyway. Cause I'd been, I was working at little Caesars for a long time. It was like three years or something, you know, all through high school and I got kind of sick of it. So I kind of did some soul searching at that time. And that's kind of when I started researching religion and, I'd gone over that in kind of other episodes, but to me, it was kind of like, well, you know, I think Christianity makes a lot of sense, but then it's like, okay, well then which, which kind of Christianity? And, you know, I kind of fell into the trap of like, well, you have to have authority. So, you know, it's re- it's basically Roman Catholics or Latter-day Saints because they're the only ones that claim to have priesthood authority, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So then I started going back into the church, got really, you know, interested in the church and like, I just studied a lot and read a lot and absorbed a lot of LDS doctrine. And that kind of, that kind of gave me that connection that I was kind of looking for this idea that I'm connected to, to God and to other people. And that I have this sense of belonging in the world that I didn't really have before that I was kind of always searching for. Um, I did, re- I didn't really do that great in, in high school um, in terms of my grades. And it's not because I couldn't do it, you know, it's just that I just didn't see the point of trying. So I was just kind of, a zombie, you know, but uh, this kind of gave me a real sense of purpose and drive when I was 
thinking about serving a mission and I felt like, you know, if, if this is true, if this gospel is true, you know, I've really got to dedicate myself to it. So it wasn't even a question of if I should serve a mission. It was like, well, if I receive a testimony, then I should, then I definitely will go on a mission. And it surprised my parents because my parents never pushed me to go on a mission. You know, my, my mom is still not active in the church. And my dad at the time was inactive for a while, for a long time. And then he kind of was starting to come back as I was coming back. So no one really pushed me to do it. So when I told him I'd been considering serving a mission, it really kind of shocked them. Those are kind of like my formative years, I guess, in terms of my being being reactivated in the church. Uh, I had a lot of people that would help me out and answer my questions. And I was really excited to serve a mission. And serving a mission, I felt like it was the hardest time of my life. It was just like the most miserable experience most of the time. But uh, coming out at the end of it, it just inculcated that that sense of identity that I was a Latter-day Saint. And like this idea that no matter what happens, that's who I am. Like I'm a child of God. I'm a Latter-day Saint. I belong to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I'm a priesthood holder. Like, you know, those were like the core foundations of who I was. Mm-hmm. And I was like, even if any, everything else changes, I still have that. Yeah, a lot of that resonates with me. So the, the church, I think, for me, was kind of all-encompassing when I was when I was younger. I remember, you know, cousins leaving and coming home from missions and going to the airport to either see them off or welcome them home. And, you know, Saturday nights during conference season, I would go with my dad to the stake center uh, in Salt Lake City, which, you know, our stake was right by Temple Square. So our stake center was like a block away from Temple Square. And we'd go and sit and listen to priesthood session. And, you know, I heard Gordon B. Hinckley give teachings like, you know, quote, each of you is a Mormon boy, whether you think it or not, you will reflect good or ill on the church by reason of your behavior. You know, and those types of teachings, I think, sunk in for me and 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 made me feel like, you know, hey, you're a Mormon boy. Um, later on, when I was in LDS seminary in middle school and high school, uh, David B. Haight was a was my favorite apostle, and. <laughs> You know, just thinking about that, like the fact that I had a favorite apostle kind of speaks to the extent to which Mormonism was like a major part of my identity. Like, did you guys have favorite apostles when you were younger? Elder Holland was by far my favorite apostle. Okay. Um, I, you know, I really started wanting to be a, a good speaker and I actually started trying to like pattern the way that I would give talks after him because I just thought he was so so powerful of a speaker and, and so interesting to listen to. And um, I really liked Elder Holland. He's actually still my favorite of the 12. I don't want it to come across as like, oh, you know, um, growing up Mormon was a negative thing because there, there were a lot of positive things about it. Um, but I think that growing up Mormon, there's definitely, uh, I think there's definitely a, a, an approach that the LDS church takes to the way that it, instructs children that is aimed at developing uh, an identity as a Latter-day Saint is is part of the instruction that's given and part of the purpose of the instruction that's given. So, you know, I remember in primary age Sunday, I've, I've got a list of, of songs we would sing, like I am a child of God, which like gives you a uniquely Mormon view of, of that concept of being a child of God. Um, you know, so does like, I lived in heaven, you know, I lived in heaven a long time ago. It is true. You know, the whole pre-earth life thing in Mormon doctrine, uh, the golden plates song, uh, book of Mormon stories, Nephi's courage, uh, the Latter-day prophets song called to serve pioneer children sang as they walked an angel came to Joseph Smith. I hope they call me on a mission. I want to be a missionary now. I'm not sure if you were alluding to it, Matthew, but like the Church of Jesus Christ, like I belong to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, you know, that song, you know, all of those are kind of aimed at kind of instilling in in Mormon children a sense of being a Latter-day Saint through through distinctives of of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, right? And I remember when I when I left on my mission, one of my parents' good friends gave me a children's songbook, which I thought was kind of an interesting gift to give to a 19 year old leaving on a mission, but he wrote on it inside. And, you know, the inscription like encouraged, encourages me to remember the truths that I learned from those songs. And I remember that, you know, that, that songbook went with me to Hungary where it was, you know, it was basically only there to be carried around in my scriptures because it was worthless for 
the children there because it was in English, but um, it's, it's something I carried with me and, and, you know, kind of held dear to me as, as like this memento of, of my being Mormon. Um, I remember in, in the MTC, there was a, you, you guys probably remember the devotionals that they would have on Tuesday nights. And there was this one speaker that they would have uh, in, in the eight weeks that I was there. He, he spoke probably five or six times. Uh, Elder Kawhi was his name. And, and he used to give these riveting devotional speeches about serving a mission in Italy and confronting Catholic priests with the true priesthood. And, you know, it just made me feel like, man, I'm going out to serve God, you know, and I'm going to, we've got this power that they don't have and we're just going to take over the world kind of mentality that was kind of instilled in you in, in the MTC. Did you guys sense that as well while you were there? Oh yeah, for sure. What's, <clears throat> I'm trying to remember the name of that song. Um, Armies of Healman. Isn't that one of those songs mm-hmm, that the mm-hmm. kids would sing? That was a really powerful song. And like, you know, they sing that part, you know, and we will be the Lord's missionaries, mm-hmm. but then they changed it to, we are the Lord's missionaries. Mm-hmm. And then the choir director was like, she started bursting in tears and everybody was getting super emotional. You just feel this like sense of community and connectedness to, you know, that you're all there for the same purpose. You all came from different parts of the world. You all believe in the same message and you're going out to share the same message in the world. It was really like, even now looking back on it, it was really kind of a cool experience to, to feel like everybody's in this together. You know, like you really did kind of feel like you were going to boot camp in a sense where you were being trained to be a soldier for God and to, to share the gospel and things like that. And, um, and it was like a really emotional experience. I can remember that when we, when we sang that song mm-hmm. and, uh, but it's just, and it's like, I, I think about that and I'm like, man, like if we could use that, you know, for Christ's church, that would, that would just be so awesome. If we could get people feeling that connected, you know, mm-hmm. I think that's one thing, like you said, in terms of children's or, you know, youth activities and, and or was it Michael? I forget. We were talking about how youth activities and youth programs are just really good to get kids involved in the church. The missionary program in the LDS church really gives you a sense of direction and a sense of purpose and a sense of, um, you know, a sense of brotherhood with all of your fellow missionaries. It's a really cool thing mm-hmm. that I kind of wish, I kind of, I kind of wonder if there's, there are Christian organizations like that where they can connect like that. The LDS church is really good at organization. You know, that's, that's one really good thing that they're, that they excel at. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. I remember just sitting in the MTC, your missionary training center, and them, you know, all those missionaries singing, you know, called to serve. That's another another one of those songs, and they just you sing it, and it's so powerful, and it's like you do, you just feel like you're part of the Lord's army, and nothing can stand in the way of you. It's just like, yeah, I mean, we're the truth, and everybody else is either going to join or they're going to get squashed i don't know if i would have said it like that at the time but you know it's just like there's this power in the church that you can't ignore and it it made you feel like the church was a much bigger deal than it really was like i kind of just felt like oh everybody's thinking about the church you know one way or another like all the time like a huge vast majority of the planet you know is is really you know worried about us in some sense. And, and it's like, now I look back and I'm like, I mean, and yeah, obviously it, it had a big part of my mind for a long time. Cause I left the church, but I mean, a lot of the time I don't even think about it, you know, these days. And I, I realize that other people don't either. Like other people have things going on in life. And it's just, just this illusion that we had while we were out there in the mission field. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I, there, there are kind of some, experiences that I had that kind of served as bookends to my mission. Um, well, I guess one of them kind of was during my mission. So I mentioned that David B. Hate. Well, I'll, I'll back up a little bit. So when I was younger, we, as a family, we would go to Temple Square uh, at Christmas time because they had all the lights put out in the trees. And, and it was just, it was a beautiful thing. I don't know, Michael, being from Texas, I don't know if you've ever seen that, if you got, ever got to see that in Utah or not, but you know, they, they deck out all of Temple Square, all the trees and, and everything with Christmas lights. And they used to have, and I don't know if they do anymore, but they used to have on, on the lawn outside of the North Visitors Center, a life-size nativity. And, you know, the, the wise men would be, were out there, you know, giant camels sitting on 
giant camels. I, I guess they were wax figures or, or plastic. I'm not sure what they were, but, um, you know, they'd be lit up in a certain way that was just beautiful. And then, you know, the North Visitor Center was like the backdrop and you would have the Christus statue, you know, kind of overlooking the nativity from the window of the North Visitor Center. It was, it was just a beautiful setting. And I remember we would go with my grandma and, you know, push her around in the wheelchair and look at the lights. And it was just, it was, that was an experience that always made me feel more Christian than Mormon. If, if I'm talking about my sense of self, right? Because it was, it was a time when you were, when we were celebrating the birth of, of the savior and he was the focus and there was just this beautiful setting of, of lights. Right. And it was all about Jesus. And then when I went on my mission, the, the first conference after I was out on my mission, David B. Hay gave a talk uh, just after Gordon B. Hinckley had spoken. And he was, you know, basically, you know, doing what a lot of the apostles will do if they speak after, after uh, the, the LDS prophet, they'll say, you know, we're thankful for a prophet's voice, you know, that kind of thing. And he was talking about some of his remembrances from when he was a child and, you know, going to meetings in, in a little, little tabernacle in Idaho where he grew up um, and singing, come, come ye saints. And he said, I felt the spirit and power of the music would raise the roof. You could feel it because of the power the faith and the testimony of the members in that little tabernacle. We would have ironic priesthood choruses where we'd learn to sing. It was there. We would sing a Mormon boy. We don't hear that song much anymore. I wish we would a Mormon boy, a Mormon boy. I am a Mormon boy. I might be envied by a king for I am a Mormon boy. And he goes on to say that made a great impression upon me. Just think of that for a moment. I might be envied by a king. Here's a king with all the power, all the pomp, all the wealth the king would have. But I was beginning to learn that we held as members of the church blessings, priesthood blessings, knowledge, information that the king wouldn't know about and didn't have. I might be envied by a king for I am a Mormon boy. And I remember reading that on my mission and just thinking, yeah. I'm a Mormon boy. That's what I am, you know? And, um, it just seemed like another instance of, of where there was this inculcation of distinctives, right? And, and, and even now you see it with the most recent general conference, right? And the, the, the new proclamation on, on the restoration, you know, there's, there's always this push of Mormon distinctives. And when I was LDS, I wouldn't have viewed it the way that I view it now. Uh, I would have viewed it as, you know, that's, that's us being us. Right. And, and, it, and we have this important message. We believe that the, the gospel has been restored and we have to get it out to the world. But my mission really kind of affected my identity in, in one sense, it hardened my resolve to be Mormon. Right. But in, in another sense, it challenged my identity as Mormon because I met people of different faiths and I had in-depth conversations with people of different faiths and heard different viewpoints on things that, I thought were kind of set in stone and, and realized that other people viewed them differently than I did. And it kind of instilled in me uh, an us versus them mentality, I think, where I was really resolved to be Mormon, but I was also really resolved to be a Mormon Christian, right? And, you know, didn't matter to me what anybody else thought or said. I, I was a Christian, um, but it was important to me also that I was a Mormon, Okay, that's a wrap on this episode. Next week, we're going to cover uh, several more questions related to identity. Uh, we're going to talk about, as we came into adulthood, how being Mormon uh, had become part of our identity, uh, how strongly we, we had a sense of self as young adults, as Mormon, quote unquote. Uh, we're going to cover uh, whether or not uh, tribe mentality can also affect Christians of other various denominations. And we're also going to cover whether making a faith transition out of the LDS church led us to experience a disturbance in our sense of self. We hope you join us for that discussion as well. Thanks, Fireflies. We thank you for tuning into this episode of the Outer Brightness Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. Please visit the Outer Brightness Podcast page on Facebook. Feel free to send us a message there with comments or questions by clicking send a message at the top of the page, and we would appreciate it if you give the page a like. We also have an Outer Brightness group on Facebook where you can join and interact with us and others as we discuss the podcast, past episodes, and suggestions for future episodes, etc. You can also send us an email at outerbrightness at gmail.com. We hope to hear from you soon. 
You can subscribe to the Outer Brightness Podcast on Apple Podcasts, CastBox, Google Podcasts, Pocket Cast, Podbean, Spotify, and Stitcher. Also, you can check out our new YouTube channel, and if you like it, be sure to lay hands on that subscribe button and confirm it. If you like what you hear, please give us a rating and review wherever you listen and help spread the word. You can also connect with Michael the Ex-Mormon Apologist at FromWaterToWine.org where he blogs, and sometimes Paul and Matthew do as well. Music for the Outer Brightness podcast is graciously provided by the talented Brianna Flournoy and by Adams Road. Learn more about Adams Road by visiting their ministry page at adamsroadministry.com. Stay bright, fireflies. I am the way and the truth